my name is Adam Canal, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise podcast. I'm so excited that um, that you, you wanted to do this. Thank you for yeah. joining me. Yeah, it's, thanks for having me. <laughs> totally. It's so it's so funny, like like many composers, I'm sure I I've been introduced to to you through your YouTube channel. Yeah. And that makes sense. This is like the first time you and I have ever interacted. Yeah. And it's like I'm still seeing you through a screen, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you're still talking too, like in your videos, but you're yeah. talking to well, me now. <laughs> but that, that's the thing is my videos aren't like, they're obviously a amped up version of my personality. And like when I'm talking about stuff, it's not what I would necessarily sound like if I'm talking to you in person, but it's not like I'm putting on a completely different persona. Mm -hmm. um, like I am just as, like nerdy about some of these things and very into it and like when I'm talking a mile a minute about something that I'm really passionate about that's not something that I exclusively do for camera <laughs> right yeah so uh and like I I can definitely say that if you meet me in person I'm a different I am different mm -hmm. but I don't think the, the I made I made a point to try to be as genuine as possible in my videos and really not completely distort my personality Right. Yeah. I, I like that you brought that up. That's so interesting to think about, especially when with people who are building or starting YouTube channels and stuff like yeah. when you first started doing it, what was that like for you trying to get used to like talking to the camera and stuff? So the funny thing is the way I started making YouTube videos was actually I used to be Tumblr famous. Mm. <laughs> um, I started Tumblr in 2012 and kind of with a group of other people ended up founding what has become a classical music community on Tumblr. And I don't really use Tumblr anymore. So I don't really know what's become of it. But at the height of Tumblr, there was a classical music community of music students and people who wanted to become music students. And I was one of the oldest people in it, mm. uh, being an undergrad at the time. And because Tumblr is 15 year olds for the most part. And I started making advice videos and Tumblr had a five minute limit. So all you could do is five minutes. And I started making these videos about like rehearsal etiquette and like things to do in a practice room or like bad things to do in a practice room. Um, and then I started wanting to make longer videos. So I had to switch platforms and in grad school in 2015, I switched over to YouTube and started making YouTube videos. So at that point I was used to talking to the camera and when I started doing it in 2012, it was kind of, I was talking to my phone, like vlogging style, like with the selfie, like holding yeah. it out myself. Um, so it was a little more organic than it would have been had I started like straight out of, or the start of my YouTube channel, if that had been the start of my video making career, it would have been different. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I guess, I guess I was just practiced by the time I was starting to do it for real um and so I was used to it and was better at like finding the words I needed quickly and I used to not edit my videos at all mm -hmm. if you go back there one take wonders where I um and I trip over my words and I, <laughs> you can see me starting and stopping the recording and I didn't clip anything out <laughs> and 
as I got more into it and sort of doing it more and being more interested in it, I'm like, okay, maybe I should, you know, actually edit these videos and uh, at least clip them so you can't see when I started and stopped the video. All right. <laughs> um, you know, I, all, the entirety of the 365 project has that you can see like my hand go out to stop the, my, to stop the recording. Mm. <laughs> um, oh yeah. I, I almost developed organically just from coming from Tumblr and coming from this like advice position in a music community and then having to adapt just because of changing platforms. Right. Wow. Okay. That's, that's interesting. So you had a good amount of experience with it on Tumblr mm. and then that, that just transitioned naturally into YouTube. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like I, this past year, I've started to put more things on YouTube, you know, and I, I'm completely guilty of what you just mentioned about like, just like long takes where you're like looking at the camera and you're like, um, and then <laughs> without the cuts and stuff. And, and yeah. um, it makes a difference. It's yeah. actually crazy how big of a difference it makes. Yeah. Throwing those cuts in that is. Exactly. Um, and I also got better at like being able to record a chunk at a time. So there weren't all these really awkward jump cuts where it looked like I was like post pasting together a ransom note. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it also like the practice of talking at a camera for a long period of time about something that I wasn't always super coherent on until I started recording. Mm -hmm. um, what I, yeah, what the, my video making method, especially for the talking videos is like, think of a subject, think of like three or four big points and then just talk and see what happens. And so sometimes the video takes a left turn that I wasn't expecting because my brain goes, oh, oh, this is the thing that we should talk about. We should focus on that. And then suddenly this video that I was intending to talk about like practice techniques turns into a rant about like teachers not supporting new music <laughs> um, but then I just retitle it and it's fine that's oh, I like that like you you there's like a pivot that happens midway and you're like yeah I'll go with this then that, that yeah. makes sense that's well, that I'm no one's asking like apart from the video projects obviously my content isn't prescribed no one's asking me to do things I'm not promising things are going to be scheduled at certain times mm -hmm. and I've kind of established that i will cover whatever I cover um so sometimes I will just talk at a camera for 10 minutes sometimes I will do a contemporary techniques video where I'm really like breaking down something and sometimes it will be a playing video and if I'm even if I'm not like in the middle of a project I do still try to post like uh I have the makeup music series which uh is kind of whenever the pieces come in and then I also will just like find a duet and play my play a duet with myself if I'm bored like it's all it's all how I feel so I don't have it doesn't feel like I have to make content I actually like doing it that's fantastic I, I like that a lot I mean it makes me think about with with uh ensembles and stuff when they do things like um team up with a brewery and do a performance where they match music with beer you know mm -hmm. and like you're like oh let me do that on my own scale within within my uh you know the things that I can control yeah. the resources I have that's what I'm trying exactly. to say the resources I have and I'll yeah. do like a, a music and makeup thing mm -hmm. clever that's so yeah. clever 
that that uh, I actually have a couple pieces I need to record, but uh, other projects have uh, gotten in the way. But um, yeah, no, that was it was just kind of thinking like, oh, this would be really fun. And I know a lot of the composers that I work with regularly are are interested in my makeup and what I do with that. And so I was like, hey, do you guys want to do this? Like, this is super chill, and I don't want to put any pressure on anyone because I'm kind of asking you to write music for me about this thing that's very specific to me. Right. Um, but also if you want to do it cool i will happily record them <laughs> that's that's great that's really especially uh in regards to the collaborative relationship you know that really like um uh i want to like i feel like it brings it out a little bit more yeah or it would at least like ha have you found that at all or yeah and i mean so the way i have that project set up um it's basically a google form where it's like do you want to do this uh do you want to use an existing look uh, do you want me to like give you one? Do you want me to do something? Do you want me to like, if you have an idea, do you want me to do a makeup look that's based on your idea? And if it's one of the two more creative ones, then I just send them something when I have a chance. And basically it was like, hey, give me a general idea of when you might be able to finish a piece. But also like, if you can't, we're obviously in quarantine and there's a lot of stress going on. So I don't want to put pressure on someone to create when it's not coming. Mm -hmm. um, and also, it, I'm not necessarily going to be able to record them immediately either. So this is a very flexible relationship of like, hey, if you get me the piece, I'll eventually record it. <laughs> right. So what what has been one for you? Like, because you're 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 mixing, learning these pieces, uh, and and creating like um, creating makeup and everything. What's been the most challenging one for you? So I've only recorded three of them right now. Maybe four, three or four. I can't remember this. I can't remember right now. Um, but there, so Rachel Whalen, who's a composer based at, he, she's at UNT right now. Um, she did, she asked me to do a, like all glitter look and wrote a piece for Piccolo with based on like shiny and sparkly things. <laughs> and one, it was quite technically difficult because Piccolo music tends to be. And two, I was like, oh, I don't wear glitter ever. Okay, I have to find glitter in my collection to do this. Oh, wow. So it was musically challenging and then also creatively challenging for me. So I don't, it's not something that I personally wear kind of thing. I love, I love how that was like, use, the use of the Piccolo is, <laughs> is, is expanding your flute. Like, I don't want to say capabilities, but like, uh, I don't know, like what you would typically play. And then yeah. also the yeah. use of glitter is expanding your makeup, yeah. you know? Like. <laughs> yeah. I, like, I, pl I play piccolo. I just um, recently I've pulled back from it. One, because I live in a very small apartment and I'm very scared of people yelling at me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and two, it's uh, because of the surgical issues I've had, it's very, very hard on my face to play. Mm. And so I've tried to avoid it just to give my face a little bit of rest. Does it does it require more like tension in the embouchure? Yeah, it's or? a very tight embouchure, and because it it pulls here, which is where I had surgery, it just kind of it just hurts, and it's not worth it. Mm. <laughs> um, it's why 100 Days has no piccolo in it. It's just because I wanted to make sure that I was respecting my health as well. Oh yeah, that's oh, wow. Well, that, that, that also makes me think too, uh, we don't have to go like with this podcast, we can go as long as you want or as short as you want. I don't want you to feel any like, Oh no, you're you fine. Know, like it's, it's totally fine. Okay. Um, it, it just like, there's just like certain things that just tweak it. And I 
know what happens and so i just don't do it <laughs> yeah okay all right well yeah like but um yeah don't want you yeah. to be compromised oh, no. in any way or no, <laughs> cool cool have you have you found that um because you mentioned your like there's a concern naturally with neighbors right yeah has has there been any complications when trying to like film a video or something so uh not in my current apartment I, my landlord once was like well someone complained and it was two in the afternoon on a saturday like they were trying to sleep and i was like well okay i'll move into my bedroom that's fine um but also like feel free to let them know that they can ask me to stop like mm-hmm. the, it, I, I if this person complains again like please ref- like direct them to me and i will uh work something out with them i've heard nothing since um go. i also i make a point when i when i moved into this apartment i made a point of like knocking on the doors of all my neighbors and being like hey here's my number if i'm ever loud or doing something at a time where you really don't want it please let me know um i'm trying to try to be as respectful as possible but i am a professional musician so this is a thing that has to happen mm-hmm. but i also understand that stuff happens and sometimes you need silence um and no one's ever had a problem uh in fact my next door neighbor blasts classical music like 24 7 while he's working <laughs> so i'm i really don't feel that bad about playing like yeah you just get extra music it's fine <laughs> yeah exactly you're getting more of what you're already listening to <laughs> uh, but in my first apartment in chicago uh our downstairs neighbors i guess could hear everything hmm. i don't really know how but fine um and they were livid at us and i went i went down there and i lived, like here's our number here's what we need to do can we use this time frame we worked at like a 10 to 5 p.m because both my roommate and i at the time worked nights so we can practice in like the early afternoon and be fine um and they put up with us but um i saw the wife when I was leaving the apartment, like we were driving out in the U-Haul and she saw me and I could see on her face. She's like, Oh, thank goodness. This woman is leaving. <laughs> oh, <So>. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> that was a, a bit of an interesting situation. <laughs> yeah. Was that one of the apartments that's like more of a house that houses like six different units or no, it was, uh, it was like a high rise. It, each floor had four apartments mm. and it was like 12 floors. And our upstairs neighbors were even louder than we were and we never had a problem with that because we knew that we were creating sound and none of the people on our floor ever had a problem including the like guy who lived across the hall that could hear everything because i once like knocked on his door and was like hey is this okay and he goes oh yeah i kind of like it it's nice to hear you guys play um but this couple was not having it (laughs) yeah they're not psyched on the classical music (laughs) Yeah. Like, and my roommate played clarinet so it's not like we had like brass instruments or drums or something like that like we were pretty low impact as far as sound goes yeah well even like yeah flute and clarinet are, are much more like delicate i guess you can say you know and they don't carry as much right exactly yeah like the frequencies aren't as piercing so i don't know yeah some people it's uh, uh you can't do anything about it you know? apartment living my, my girlfriend plays the oboe Mm. so um that can get pretty honky you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> we haven't had any complaints yet but um our neighbors are also they they play music and stuff and you know yeah. so it's it's like one you know it's it's a balancing act I exactly guess. but yeah yeah what about um do you do you live stream at all i do sometimes 
I've live streamed concerts um, and I like try to, especially when I'm doing like a concert that has program music programmed from one of the YouTube projects, I definitely try to live stream it because most of those composers have no access to uh, Chicago. Mm -hmm. Some of them are not in the country, (laughs) but uh, I, yeah, I don't live stream very much. Uh, I kind of like the recorded video like system that I have set up. Um, I find that my mics fail more in live streams. And so I get, I get more audio problems and it's not worthwhile as far as I'm concerned for what I do. Um, I do really appreciate the like uptick in live stream concerts because I can actually go see stuff now. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, we just, com- we just finished Splice Festival 4, which was all live streamed because we can't be in person. Um, and there were some really, really interesting uses of video to because it we it was live streamed and we all knew it and so some people did some really creative things with the videos Mm. um but yeah no i i'm always curious about moving into twitch and like doing some of that stuff and i know uh do you know eric heidbreger at all i don't think so he's a bassoonist and he also is like a comedic singer um, and he does these Oregon, or I haven't seen him do them lately, but uh, he was doing these Oregon tra- Trail live streams where they would play Oregon Trail on Twitch and he would have people come in and improvise music during it. Um, Oregon so Trail, like, really, like from the old video yeah, game? Like, yeah, like the old video game. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, there are some really cool things that you can do with it. I just, it's not... It, it would require a lot of like adjustment in my content and I'm not right. Re- I'm not there yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. I imagine uh, the hardware has to be like, you know, mics or whatever and cameras and stuff. Well, actually, yeah. I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, yeah, you could just do it from the laptop as well, but yeah. Um, um, I just, it's more just, I don't know Twitch and it's when you platform jump, it's always a little scary whether your audience is going to jump with you. Mm-hmm um so there's also that factor of i'm my content is pretty much like stable youtube content and so it would be a bit of a character shift and a change to switch to twitch which is fine if that's something i want to do in the future i'm not going to let it stop me Mm -hmm. um but for what i do right now it's not really necessary yeah no that that makes a lot of sense and even um that's a that's a way a good way to think about uh artistically too like making that sort of jump it's like if you're a classical musician and then you're like oh let me try doing like blues you know like mm-hmm. it, is my audience going to come with me yeah you know and are they going to be interested and also there could be a completely different audience that you develop but it's if you like the audience that you have then there is you do have some responsibility to them at least in terms of letting them know if something's going to change. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't think that your, like your audience dictates your content. Um, I don't think that's fair. And I think that creators are allowed to make the content they want. Mm. Um, but you do want to give them a heads up and say like, Hey, I'm going to try this thing now. And if you don't like it, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is something that I'm interested in now. Yeah. I, I like what you said there about, um, uh, really just like pursuing whatever it is that you want to pursue, uh, you know, cause it's like, for one thing, like, why shouldn't you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, especially if you're a creative person that has these sort of uh, impulses and drives, 
and and so it kind of makes me wonder like with with the because you've done a bunch of these sort of uh like challenges yeah you know like there was like the 365 days 52 uh, weeks 52 weeks yeah <laughs> so like through that path how have you um because i know like with youtube you can look at the analytics and see yeah. the statistics and all that stuff so like <clears throat> have you found that certain trends take place when you go through those projects at all or yeah so i mean 365 is the easiest one to see the trends just because there's so many videos and it's such a wide variety of music that you can kind of see where people are searching um and the my single most viewed video on my channel is an excerpt from peter and the wolf it's the like the really standard flute solo that everyone kind of knows um and it's, it's a random one-off day in the middle of 365. I think it's like 200-something. Um, and it has 8,000 views. <laughs> there you go. Um, it's like a one-minute-long video. I don't even think it's that good of a performance of the excerpt, but I'm my own worst critic, obviously. Mm. Um, and it just somehow the algorithm just liked it. And when people search like Peter and the Wolf flute, I come up really quickly. Mm. Um, and that's true of a lot of the Shostakovich excerpts and the Prokofiev excerpts. Like, th- like the Russian school of flute playing apparently is very popular on YouTube. Um, and uh, like obviously the beginning and the end is always the most popular because people tune in at the beginning because they want to see it happen. And then when it actually finishes... They're really excited to see that. And that's true with 52 Weeks as well. But 52 Weeks, because it was more of a workshop and like a process project and less just a challenge, um, doesn't have the the numbers that uh, 365 did. Um, but that was also not the point of it. It was more like tr- really giving composers access to a flutist who was actually willing to play their music and have the skills to be able to do it. Because um, what I found with 365 was that the composers that I was working with were really incredibly grateful to just have someone play their music because it, some of these pieces had never been played and had been written five years ago. Um, and it was just because they were somewhere where they didn't have access to a performer that had the skill set um, and interest. Well, um, I, there's, yeah. So, sorry for interrupting you. I just... <laughs> Thank you on behalf of composers. Thank you for providing <laughs> that resource, like <laughs> and well, that, and the opportunity, really. Yeah, I, well, I think over the course between 2016 and 20 and the end of 2018, I played 200 works by living composers um, <laughs> through the course of 365 and 52 weeks plus gigs and things like that that I was doing, um, and that's an incredible number of pieces for anyone. In that like in that time frame, especially, but even in a career, that's a so much new music, yeah. and I wanted to be able to actually help composers because a lot of the things that I've discovered, just talking to composers and being at like festivals and doing composition workshops with composers, is that the biggest thing that they don't get is performer feedback. Um, they can get people to play their pieces, but you'll hear the performers bitching about it in the, in, in the wings and they won't tell the composer why there's a problem. And then they'll never play anything again that was written by a living composer. Whereas if they had just taken the five seconds to go, Hey, I can't do this. Here's what would be better. And like, can I please do this? Or what's this sound doesn't work. 
I think this would be better or even just, I don't know how to do this. Can we change it? Uh, it would help composers way more. And it's such an easy thing on our part because we know our instruments better than you guys do. That's like what's expected of us. We've been yeah. playing for however long and like do this for a living. So it's only fair to like help people get better. Um, and so I, yeah, I kind of just took, I took it upon myself to at least help a little bit. Um, and I have plans to expand the project, especially 52, 52 weeks is kind of the basis for a lot of what I'm planning. It's just the world has not allowed me to, uh, act on these plans. Um, <laughs> but there it'll, it'll happen eventually. <laughs> Cause I want to expand the model and bring in more musicians and have, composers be able to play or to write from more instruments and different instruments and hopefully chamber ensembles and larger ensembles um, in the same kind of collaborative workshop model that you get at a summer festival but with the guarantee that the people are actually going to give you feedback you don't have to pay and you don't have to travel because uh, I think those are the biggest limitations that people encounter especially with festivals yeah, well, I, I can't, off the top of my head, I can't think of any other opportunity that exists like that. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, um, that's a valuable yeah. thing right there. Yeah, and considering that in 2018, when I did 52 weeks, I had 250 submissions for a project that clearly could only have 52 pieces. Um, and this was before really anyone had ever worked with me, like, the 365 was this like novelty project that did obviously create a very large bank of pieces and performances that people could believe I could play. Um, but no one really knew me in the community apart from people I went to school with. It wasn't as much as like now people have a tendency to be like, Oh yeah, I saw your videos. Or like, I, I, used your videos for composition help or like, oh yeah, you played my friend's piece. But at the time it was pretty much like, hey, I'm a random flute player. You don't know who wants to workshop 52 pieces with you. Um, to, to, let, let's see. And some of them were my friends, but some a lot of them were people I had never met. <laughs> that's that's so. so fantastic to have that uh, that sort of like feedback for you. Yeah. And, you know, like, yeah. like there's, that that's right there it's like well you're doing something right yeah exactly and, and like I said definitely providing a great resource for composers yeah. and it definitely it definitely proved that it was a model that worked and it was a model that was worthwhile um considering that through through the course of the project every single person had something produced out of it mm -hmm. like so we did we did something with every week um and some of these people are people I've continued working with now um Ralph Lewis is the easiest one to quote because I've worked with him so often. Um, but his piece from 52 Weeks, we actually did a sequel to recently. We're talking about doing a third one because uh, this particular piece uses the YouTube algorithm to like accompany itself. Um, and so it's a really true YouTube piece and we've made a sequel to it with clarinet as well. So there, there's also been so many opportunities that came out of it for collaboration after working with these people. Mm, that sounds really interesting it, mm -hmm. how does it use the youtube algorithm like what is well, it's, it's not it's not the algorithm so much as the keyboard shortcuts um mm. but basically the number the number keys will jump through a video in equal increments so if you have a five minute long video the number keys will jump through 30 seconds at a time 
Um, so there's a flute piece that plays straight through with a score that pops up for number keys that you play. So you have two windows open. One is just playing the video straight through and you're following the score on that. And then you have a video open that you're playing with the number keys and accompanying itself. Um, so it uses the actual score material as the accompaniment to, uh, as the laptop part. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. See, like the composer side of me had to ask a question about that. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. um, like I, in the, this is Ralph's brainchild. I just kind of figured out a way to make it work in terms of the editing and the, and the YouTube logistics. Um, but this was his idea. He wanted to create something that was truly a YouTube piece and knew that the keyboard shortcuts did that. And we figured it out. <laughs> Super cool. Mm -hmm. Totally into yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. It's called Duotube. Um, it's that one's in, in the 52 weeks project and its sequel is called Mox tube because it was from Moxonic, uh, the electroacoustic festival at, um, I think it's central Missouri state. I might be wrong there, but it's, a it's in Missouri, uh, usually in March every year. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I'll definitely have to link, link those to this, uh, to this video in the description. Yeah, they're very, people they're can cool. check it out. Yeah. What, what, so what's something with working with composers? Like, cause you know, we've been talking about that a little bit. What's something with working composers that you're like, come on guys, you really gotta, you gotta be listening here or like, you know, thinking more about these sort of things or. I mean, the thing that annoys me the most is notes that just don't exist on the instrument. Mm. Like things that a textbook, like the Adler textbook could tell you immediately. <laughs> um, Does that I, the, a lot? Yeah, especially on piccolo because yeah. piccolo only goes down to D um, and we get a lot of like C and C sharp and Bs, which don't, like, in, uh, they, they're written uh, C4 and B3, but they spoken C4, or C5 and B4, because um, the piccolo starts at uh, speaking pitch D5. Mm. Um, there is a specific instrument that goes down to the low notes, but they're very specific, they're very hard to find, because they're expensive, and uh, that's a very niche market to write for. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but, like, I, I have a lot of leeway with, especially, like, avant-garde and, and extended writing because there's so little codification of technique, um, especially for composers' uh, notation, mm. uh, that I can't blame you for using something weird unless you're using X note heads for anything other than key clicks. <laughs> Those are key clicks. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's my like one pet peeve with uh, extended writing is that uh, X note heads are key clicks. There's no other option. Put your foot down on that one. Yes. <laughs> um, but basically, like, I I basically when I see a score, if it is clear to me, and as long as it's there's words and there's a key and I know what's happening, it's fine. Like I I will figure out what symbols you used for the things that I'm doing because. The, they're everyone uses them differently and i can't blame you for having a different resource than the one that i learned kind of thing um but it does have to be clear if you just put random symbols on a page and don't give me any key or any indication of what the symbols mean i i'm, I'm going to walk away right <laughs> um yeah well that, i mean yeah you can't be blamed for that either no. If, it, if it's like <laughs> if it's if it's if it's too challenging to like even navigate on your own then 
then yeah you know that's that's no fault but the composers really exactly and i like i understand like I, obviously i work in a very collaborative way um and most of the pieces that are written for me are written with consult from me or from my videos which kind of codify how i want things to be notated um but i also am a very big proponent of these pieces need to have a life outside of my performance um and if i'm the only one who can read it then is it really successful obviously like um i do a lot of flute and voice playing and so there's a lot of pieces that are written with a very very specific vocal range that fits my voice really well so that's limiting in terms of who can play it outside of that but that was a choice that we actively made and someone with a similar vocal range can play this piece it's just going to be harder to find someone who has a similar vocal range that's that's a limitation and that's something that we always talk about whenever someone's writing for flute and voice is like hey do you want this to be played by anyone except me because yeah. <laughs> uh, you can really easily scare people off if it has like a low a in it and they are a soprano <laughs> but uh, there's also ways around that particular limitation and like allowing for octave transposition and that kind of stuff but if it's illegible uh, or only legible in my like specific coded language that I have been like writing in and reading in for as long as I can remember, then that's not fair either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's definitely one of the challenges with uh, new music is, is there's no standard way of notating things. There's, there's definitely certain conventions that are mm -hmm. common, but not even like, like uh, typical, I guess. I don't know. Well, and I also noticed, like, across instruments, it's different. Yeah. Um, like, within the woodwind family, especially, like, saxophone, especially just because they have such a wide range of contemporary sounds, flute notation and saxophone notation don't always line up, even for the same things. Because mm. um, for flute, I, my typical, like, slap tongue or pizzicato notation is an accent note head. But from what I can tell, that it's different for saxophone players. Um, they're not as used to that, or they don't use it as much. I don't even, like, I just remember seeing some posts on Facebook about saxophone notation and being like, that's not what I would ever read that as. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think the same sound. Yeah, yeah. I, I've written quite a bit for saxophone, and I've used slap tongue in, in my music before. And um, I, I even, like, for me, in my repertoire alone i've changed the notation for it mm -hmm. and, and and i don't think i've ever had a saxophonist tell me like this is not how we read slap tongue like yeah i i mean i've used like cross note head not cross note heads but like across above the uh mm -hmm. the yeah stem. i see that a lot yeah um and like even the bar talk pizzicato like the circle yeah. line coming out of it yeah exactly you know? yeah so there's like Ah, it, it, it makes my mind twist a lot. Right. And I think, I think it's also, I kind of like delved into the world of like very avant-garde, new complexity, 1970s music by playing Fernie Howe. And so I also like, I understand that notation better than a lot of others, just because I spent like a year on, of my life on that piece. Sure. And it, I had to, I had to be able to read it fluently to be able to effectively play it. And so now I kind of think in that notation, which is an older notation that a lot of people don't want to delve into because Fernie Howe is scary mm. and his scores are scary to look at. Um, and so they don't always want to use those 
notations because they like imply this fear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I also like the fing- fingering charts are always different. Like there's so little codification. That's actually something that I would love to be able to have an influence on is like, can we have something standard for some of these sounds that are not going away? Um, Cause you also have like Shirino techniques where he made them up with a flutist and like put them into a piece and now they're standard somehow, mm-hmm. despite the fact that the only person who ever used them previously was him. Um, and so there's all these things that like, I don't even know how to notate because the only person who ever notated them is Shirino and he was writing them for this person who he worked with directly. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's, I think I think to answer your question, my biggest like issue with composers is unclear notation. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here, crew composers out there. <laughs> Be clear about what you're notating when you're asking performers to do something. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, well, even with the Sharino, because um, uh, I think I think I know the technique you're talking about. It's like that, like bird warble. Yeah, with, yeah. The, with the right hand troll key. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's like a descending line or something, yep. but it's like not yep. actually descending. And uh, the only score I ever found it explained in only explained it in Italian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I, my teacher and I spent like 45 minutes listening to recordings of pieces, trying to figure out what the sound was. And eventually she was like, oh, it's the like this trill thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw it in a piece later on and I just kind of messaged the composer and was like hey just so you know like I know what this is it's fine but you probably want to explain this a little bit better than like scaring a trill in the score because I you literally that's kind of a deep cut in terms of uh not like flute knowledge um and if you have anyone who isn't a contemporary specialist playing this and even someone who is a contemporary specialist playing this they might not know what that is um and the composer was like oh I was just like studying this score and i thought it was really cool and i didn't realize how unstandard it was and i was like yeah but yeah that's <laughs> please change that <laughs> well that's that's great advice right there i mean as like um i think especially when it comes to these sort of techniques and you mentioned uh having a um a performer who's not as used to contemporary techniques being able to explain the technical aspects of the technique but also the uh the the sound of what is being produced yeah you know like so how to do it and then what it should sound like yeah exactly uh, um, yeah especially when like some of these uh, just thinking about fluid techniques like sound and air techniques have so many variables um because how much air do you want how little air do you want do you want a syllable on it do you want just straight noise air like what what do you want and um I find that composers are never super clear about that. And so that's something that I've been kind of railing on recently is like, hey, if you want to write air techniques, cool, but also like give us an idea of the sound world you're going for. Do you want a certain syllable on it? In which case, say which syllable. Um, If you want it to be 50-50, literally say you want it to be 50-50 and it'll be a lot easier and you'll get a much better performance when the flutist isn't just like, okay, you want an airy tone what kind of airy tone <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that makes a lot of sense and that's actually a little bit of the issues i was facing with the the piece that i had written in uh in june because i used quite a bit of air sounds in that and like i i was like well how should i describe this or how should i notate this or to what like 
I don't have a flute, so how am I gonna, you know, like yeah. <laughs> a lot of those issues that we're talking about right now is exactly what I was experiencing. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad that you mentioned that. That's so yeah, important. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons that like I make the Contemporary Techniques 101 and the Contemporary Techniques for Composers series is just, there's so many things that you would never think about until you're using them. And then suddenly it's a really big problem because you don't know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. um, that it makes sense to have some kind of resource available for composers and also for flutists um, to figure out how to learn how to do some of these things, how to write some of these things, and also how to communicate to each other what the problems are. Because that's another thing too, is like there's composer speak and there's performer speak and it doesn't always line up. Um, and being able to translate to each other what you're trying to express <laughs> can be very helpful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I know what you're saying. It's, it's, uh, it's so interesting to kind of see that too. Like when you're so in your world, and then when you when you when you speak to someone like like a composer, they have their language of saying mm -hmm. things, and like you're so trained in your instrument, you're like, oh yeah, you mean this key, and it's like, uh, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's funny, is like I I've spent so much time with composers at this point, and like through school, most of my friends were composers. So despite the fact that I don't write that much for myself. I do speak composer essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's been a, it's a lot easier to, for me just because I like know what these words mean. And like, uh, not quite my aesthetic is usually, I really didn't like this piece, but I don't want to say it kind of thing. Right. <laughs> like coded terms for com that composers use to not insult their friends. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, there, there's some ways around it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I like, I think bridging bridging the gap between composer and performer and really creating more collaborative spaces and more symbiotic relationships rather than just like here's the piece here's the recording we never discuss this ever again right but is better than than the previous model where it's like you play the thing and then you never talk about it again so with that like when you're working with a composer especially if it's a new composer how do you uh like, um, how do you start those conversations with them? I mean, do you like send them a, a whole spreadsheet? Like, hey, this is my stuff. This is what I do. Um, or like, so I mean, usually if someone's writing for me, I'll be like, hey, just let me know if you need help. Like, if you have a question about something, and then if, if they send me the piece and there's issues with it, then I'll like email them and be like, hey, uh, here's some things. Like, do you want me to do this? Is here's this is unclear. Um, I think you mean this. Do you mean this? Um, it really just depends. And I think there's also, at this point, I have so many resources available that people have a pretty good idea of what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. um, so I haven't had as many, like, glaring issues. And sometimes there's just like, hey, I don't know how to do this. What were you going for? Because I can adjust it um, and make the same sound, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, right now I'm going through 100 Days, which is a little bit more of a whirlwind because I don't have the chance to like workshop these pieces and I can record them and then send the recordings on to the composers, but there's not as much time for like feedback, but I do try if there was something that I really thought was weird or if there was something that was uncomfortable or could be really easily adjusted, I'll send a note and just be like, Hey, I really appreciated this. Uh, like, here's the recording. Also in measure 12, you might want to change this to this, or like, this is a little unclear. Um, I did the best I could, but like, 
just for just so you know um but if someone's like writing something for me for a very specific purpose then we'll be a little bit more collaborative and a little bit closer it really just depends on the situation and the the way that the piece is being produced right yeah sort of the nature of how that relationship is is going to pan out exactly yeah i know yeah some composers it's a little bit more like they need to work behind closed doors and then bring the piece out or some composers it's like let's hang out let's have some beers and let's talk about this you know yeah or even like i have i have a couple pieces that i got sent in pieces like they would send me like hey can you like record this just so i can hear it and then i would not hear from them for a little bit and then they send me something else and then they'd send me that and then the piece would come back looking nothing like anything i had ever recorded but cool <laughs> um but yeah it, it i there's so many different working models for composers that it, you can't really just say like, oh, this is how you do the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely like being open and being able to say, hey, if you have questions, please let me know. And um, like I, I right now, my friend and I are working on the alto, alto flute multiphonics to try to figure out ones that can alternate quickly. Um, and rather than write ones that he thought would work, we're just going to find ones that work and write those. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, and, but then there's also people who write stuff for me and then just send it to me and then I record it and we never really need to talk about notation or anything ish, anything like that. Mm. Um, so it, yeah, it's, I kind of leave it open and go from what the composer wants and also what the piece needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's one thing I think that's really, really great about what you offer and what you do, which is so evident even in this conversation is like, you're so interested in making sure that that composers are, are able to effectively communicate what it is that they're writing and stuff. And I mean, even I, I can I can attest to it that you're you're so um, inviting and welcoming and, and open to trying new things, just just even through correspondence. But um, if there are composers out there who, who are interested in working with you, what is something that like, how should they contact you? Or, or, and even in that, like, what is a way that someone's contacted you where you're like, no, 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 that's not how you start this. <laughs> um, so to be perfectly honest, I don't really care how you contact me. Um, like I get Instagram DMs with composers being like, Hey, can you look at this piece? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Cool. Um, I like contact through my website, um, Facebook, like, I I really don't care as long as um, I'm not referred to as Mr. Makesons, because that's, like, the really, that's the quickest way for me to be like, yeah, no, you didn't look at anything I do. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, that, yeah. That's happened, huh? Like, gender is a social construct, but I kind of express my gender pretty clearly. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That, yeah, that was uh, a fun uh, development when the 365 started popping off is I got like eight or nine emails addressed to Mr. Mixons. And that, that was an immediate like turn off. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the only thing that really pisses me off is like that or misspelling my name. Um, especially when you're coming from my website, mm-hmm. uh, which has my name plastered all over it. Uh, sure. <laughs> my last name, my last name is a difficult last name. It's hard to spell. Um, also Robin with a Y is a very common name, but take the, take the time to please figure out whether my name is right or not. Um, Cause that, it just, I find it very disrespectful, obviously. Um, but that's really the only thing that's ever like made me not want to work with someone. Um, I guess also like not asking for my help and then not listening to me. 
Mm. Um, like there, there's one piece and I won't say exactly which one because I don't really want to call this composer out, but there was a technique that I didn't know how to do. I was struggling mightily with it and kind of asked, can I adjust this? Um, because I, I really find this difficult and I think that maybe having an alternative would be great because this is a very difficult technique. And he basically said, no, you have to figure it out. And I, I like, I, I did. And the, he's just not someone that I really particularly want to work with again. Well, there's a lot of good stuff in there that, I, that you, you brought up. I mean, for one thing, like the professionalism of addressing someone properly and exactly like how their name and everything, you know, <laughs> that's like, that's like, basic right there not to say not to say that what you're saying isn't important to mention because it definitely is you know no um, and I, like i have no problem with just being like having an email address to hello robin like yeah. fine you don't have to use any kind of titles or anything like that mm-hmm. um but as long as my if you get my name right i will actually continue reading <laughs> i i had a sort of similar experience and I, and I won't get into what the context of it was and i i definitely made a mistake on my part so like that's you know i'm at fault in some degree with that but the person who i was corresponding with via email uh my name is adam a-d-a-m right the the following two emails after we were corresponding was hi aaron and hi alex Hmm. and i realized that they were specifically trying to like stick a knife in and turn it a little bit just by you know addressing me with the wrong name because they weren't getting what they wanted oh yeah, yeah. So I logged that name in my head <laughs> and I won't forget who they are and anytime, you know, that that you know. So that does matter. It is important. Yeah. And I also like uh, I will say there like the the contemporary music world is small. Oh yeah. And if you've made a bad impression on someone that I really respect, I am going to be more wary. Um, I'm, I'm never going to write someone off based on other people's experiences. I don't think that's fair. Um, but there are some people that I just, am, I have a little bit of a question mark about. And if they approached me in a way that I didn't, like, if, if they approached me in a very aggressive or a very, like, direct way, I might be more worried about working with. Um, and I, there's also some composers that I just have had too many, like, not great experiences with just with their rehearsal etiquette and the way that they interacted with people that I'm like, okay, um, I guess if you pay me enough, I'll do it. But, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, considering that I, I really do offer a lot of my services for free. Maybe not. <laughs> the, well, the, there's so much in this right now that like, it sounds, it sounds like a lot of this conversation is sort of centered around just how you function and develop the professional but also personal relationship with who mm-hmm. you're working with yeah uh, th- that's so important clearly and it matters mm-hmm. a lot um i mean like you're saying how there's composers who might just be inflexible is mm-hmm. that the word Inf- yeah um, what's that? I, gotta be- <laughs> I don't know what the word is but um like the one you mentioned with that technique where you're like i'm not certain about this can we try something different and they're like mm-hmm. no <laughs> it's you know that 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 affects things that affects yeah. people that affects like your future like prospects or opportunities yeah and i mean it like it also breaks the trust yeah um because i i do see these relationships as like trusting relationships i trust you to 
trust me to be able to play your music. Um, but the trust it also goes back with me like trusting that the composer will listen to me and will respect my limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when that kind of thing happens, that trust is broken and I'm no longer as willing to like work again. And I, like, I would never bomb a performance or not do a recording just because a composer was rude to me. Um, but again, it does change my relationship moving forward. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. And um how important that is yeah i kind of i, I kind of can't get over that right now actually i, I don't know why but I, i'm just i guess i'm just glad to hear you saying all that because maybe i'm starting to realize it more and more with with the relationships that i have with the people that i work with and everything and like um yeah it's just so important mm-hmm. and, and uh yeah the value that's brought between like because the composer like we our music is impossible <laughs> unless someone performs it you know mm-hmm. i mean unless yeah. you're writing like electronic music or something like but that even then like you still there there's still a creative element and there there's still it still has to be programmed somehow <laughs> right exactly yeah yeah but oh how how important that is and mm-hmm. it's uh it's sort of interesting because so you you're um you have your youtube channel that that a lot of this stuff is, is really kind of, I don't want to say filtered through, but that's how it's like, um, produced and put out into the world. Yeah. 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 So, um, you have a, a, a large exposure there and everything, um, versus just sort of like intimate performances in like a concert venue, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, how has having your YouTube channel, how has that affected, your relationships and interactions with composers who you work with or really anyone not just composers like musicians or even general fans um I mean it's it definitely has changed it definitely has expanded my relationship with composers just because I have like internet friends essentially like people I haven't really met or maybe there are a few people that I've like met in my travels who I've worked with who we met up because I was there um but I have kind of a network of composers that I trust and that I, if I needed something, I'd be like, Hey, do you have a flute piece? I can program like, I'll send you a recording kind of thing. Uh, And most of them will let me play their music. And so I have like a huge library of music that I have access to, which was a huge advantage. Um, And it's also, uh, it kind of has changed my perspective on the music world and creation in general. Um, I'm very much interested in like a more hybrid career, partially online and partially in person, because I don't think that like in-person music should go away. Uh, But I do think that the internet is a very valid creation space and it can be used as a creation space rather than just like an archive. Um, It is something to be used for its benefit. And like we're in the modern era, like we're all millennials and Gen Zers and whatever you want to call us. Like we're part of the internet era. And I find that classical music doesn't really embrace the internet. Um, And so I've kind of found myself as like a pioneer and a crusader for some, at some points for the internet being a valid place to present music. Mm. And amusingly enough, or not, uh, COVID has kind of re- like COVID has allowed people to realize that I was right. 
<laughs> um, for better or for worse, like I've been doing this since, for a very long time. And for a while, there were a lot of people who kind of were like, oh yeah, she's just like that internet person, like cool, like does these crazy projects. Like it's kind of a gimmick. Um, but now I think people are starting to realize that like it is a very valid place to have a career or part of a career. Um, and yes, I don't make money on my YouTube channel, but the reach and the audience that I have created gets me actual paying jobs and has allowed me to work with festivals and to do all these collaborative projects that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise, um, just because my connections are larger and I also have a huge library of performances to prove that like I, I can play as well as talk. <laughs> That's such a great, uh, such a great point of uh, the, the exposure aspect of it. Yeah. And, 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 um, uh, and like you said, like the reach and everything, mm-hmm. like even though you're not making any money off of your YouTube, it's providing you those opportunities. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, too, because you'll, you'll hear that a lot in the new music community where it's like, oh, well, we can't pay you, but you'll get exposure. Often that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. You know, this is this is different because it's yeah. actually like no one's offering you the opportunity to do YouTube. You are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're creating it yourself. Uh, yeah, like I would much prefer to create my own exposure than hope that someone else's rubs off on me. Oh, that's... Um, I have to say how beautiful it is to hear you say that. Like, <laughs> like I think it's important because a lot of people, the competitions and call for scores for composers. And it's like, people get frustrated that there's like um, uh, uh, a fee, a fee mm-hmm. to enter, you know, which is, is a valid frustration. But at the mm-hmm. same time, the people holding the competition, they're offering an opportunity and, and they have to pay the people who are affiliated with that opportunity, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of going off into something now. But. I mean, yeah, I. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's like I'm happy to play in tiny venues and play weird shows. Like I'm I'm not going to say I'm above that in any way. It's half of what I do, mm-hmm. um, and it, it like I definitely do still play in person, mm-hmm. um, but I also have this opportunity to do so many other things that I mean. It's not like I would be able to do that if I were only working in person. Um, there's pieces that I would never be able to perform in person because I don't have speaker systems. But when I can like rig a match pa- max patch to record and then like layer the video, I can play live electronics pieces from my living room. <laughs> and like they're uh, without needing someone on the mixer to help with levels and feedback and everything like that. So there, it also creates more opportunities that you wouldn't have otherwise that's so great yeah i the the uh yeah wow i i'm curious with with your with all the projects that you do i mean because like you're you present all these uh opportunities for composers but also creating opportunities for yourself you know Mm -hmm. like the 52 weeks and and now you're doing 100 days of new music right yeah so i'm curious like how do you balance all these projects and then just even with like because you work before we mm-hmm. started this conversation uh, uh you were saying that you work at a, at a pharmacy and stuff yeah you know so so how do you balance all of that 
Um, so, I mean, when I first started doing these projects, I was working nights and really didn't have a social life. I had just moved to Chicago. I didn't know anyone apart from my roommate. So it didn't feel that bad or weird to be stuck in my apartment practicing all day. It kind of just felt like I was actually doing something. Um, cause I, 365 came out of my like general feeling of not not being worth the move. I was living in Chicago. I wasn't playing at all. I like wasn't practicing. I didn't have any gigs. And while I knew it was going to be hard moving to a new city and like doing all this stuff, I didn't really realize until then that it was really, really going to be difficult. And so I came up with something that would force me to do something. Um, I didn't really intend it to be what it ended up being, but I just kind of needed to practice um 52 weeks was kind of a, a passion project in a way to work, collaborate with composers in a way that I wasn't feeling like I could because again didn't know a ton of people was in Chicago and trying to create build connections and was at that point but also I mean it takes a long time to find people in a city especially uh in a city with so many people and so many composers and so many music students that this random person who moved from Indiana isn't going to track as much just because they know people who they went to school with. And of course they're going to choose those people over this random person they don't know. Right. Um, the, the more recent projects I have used as a chance to like really work back into my playing. I unfortunately have had a lot of medical issues over the course of 2019, 2020. And so I've had to take a lot of time off and have used particularly the two 30-day projects or 31-day as the case may be, projects as a chance to be like, okay, here's a Kickstarter and an easy thing. They were all graphic scores or improvs, so they didn't have as many limitations or like technical facility things that I had to do. Um, and like, like, let's just kick back into playing. And this one, this one is a, is a time suck and it does take a lot of F energy and it is a lot of planning and timing um, because I am working full time. But this one is kind of important just because it really does feel like my actual comeback and not just the, a placeholder. Um, and I wanted to do something real. I wanted to do something big and I haven't been able to play like this much new music in a long time. Um, 60 pieces is a lot <laughs> um, and 40 improvs. And I, yeah, this one, I kind of, I guess I guess kind of do it. It isn't something that I think about until it's after the fact. Mm. Um, it's always just been like, okay, this is the time I'm, I'm cutting out to practice. This is the, this is what I think I can accomplish in this time. Let's find a piece that I think I can accomplish in this time and do it. And if I am really struggling and don't have a lot of time, I have an improv I can do, uh, which is why I included the improvs because those are a lot easier to film, obviously. Um, but it's kind of sheer will, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> More than anything, it's just stubbornness and like, no, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to work because that's the only thing that can do. Oh, Robin, I love that. That's That's like... That's one of the hardest things I think for people is, is when they, when they're out of school and they no longer have someone being like holding them accountable because a grade is involved. 
or yeah exactly or a concert that you have to be ready for exactly or whatever it is yeah you're sort of you're you're creating these specific uh like like time bound things for yourself like holding yourself accountable in a way yeah and i mean like these i don't do these projects just for the publicity and just for the like fame or whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. um they are developmental for myself i actually just talked about this at splice festival yesterday um like i i make them so that they push me in some way um like the improv project was a chance to test myself as i had my improv skills were developed in the last couple years and were something that i was very uncomfortable with um and so from like 2017 to now i have made myself improvise in public and have been doing more of that and so the 30 days of improv challenge was basically like hey let's let's put this to the test can you do this and can are you comfortable putting up things that you don't love (laughs) as that's the thing with improv is sometimes they don't go the way that you want them to and yeah (laughs) but that's also part of the magic of it so like that it was it was like it was a you have to do this thing um the graphic scores was a mental capacity thing of like oh well let's do some interpretation and not just like play other people's music directly from the page but like really interpret stuff um and this one is a challenge it's also trying to get my chops back up um i used to be able to sight read almost anything in three hours and that has definitely gone away so uh let's try i'm trying to get that some of that skill back um and also just practice for 100 days straight um because i I have my issues with the 100-day practice challenge that kind of floated around Instagram for a long time. Um, But there is something to be said about playing for 100 days straight uh, if it's with a purpose. Right. Um, My issue with the challenge is more that people just kind of did it and didn't really think about it. And I think you should think about these challenges before you do them and do them with intention. (laughs) Um, But 100 days is a very significant amount of time. And that's a lot of there's you can produce a lot and you can grow a lot in that time yeah i mean well that's a little over a quarter of a year mm-hmm. you know that's like yeah. three months and however long yeah um and I, I like what you said about not just doing the challenge but what the purpose is for doing it mm-hmm. and i think to tack onto that as well is is um how heavily are you how do i say that how how intense is your focus while you're doing that thing mm-hmm. You know, because it's one thing to sort of passively, like it's like an exercise challenge, you know, which I think is a pretty popular thing is, is to take on certain exercise challenges. And it's like, <clears throat> you could be doing the exercises, but are you doing them properly? Are you doing them in a way that triggers the muscles so that they're effectively being used? And I, long enough. What's that? Are you doing them for long enough? Exactly. Like, um, yeah. So yes, there are days where I play for five minutes but it's five minutes with intention to record a video that has to go on the internet, which means I have to be okay with it. Mm. <laughs> it can't just be me messing around for five minutes. It does have to be a focused five minutes. Um, and then there's some days where I practice for three hours because the piece is really hard and I can't get it recorded. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's always active practicing. And so that is so much 
better than just kind of going, okay, well, I need to practice today. And then you play like some scales while watching YouTube videos. Yeah. <laughs> Not to say that I haven't done that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we all do that. Don't worry. <laughs> we all do I don't, that. I don't want to shame the, the scales in YouTube practice right. uh, session, but <laughs> sometimes you do want to play with intention. <laughs> yeah. It has its place at, yeah. you know, there's times for it. Yeah. Um, that's, <laughs> that's funny. Um, yeah, with with improvisation, and, and, and you mentioned being okay with just putting it online and putting it out mm-hmm. there. And I think that also, that like translates into improvisation itself, where it's like being okay with what you just did. Yeah. How, how have you gotten to the point where you feel comfortable with that? I honestly don't really know. Um, I think it was just doing it. Like it was just practicing being uncomfortable. Mm. Um, as I so I was working with Splice. So Splice is an electroacoustic uh, institute and festival that run, is based out of Kalamazoo, and the festival rotates locations. Uh, so the, the 2018 institute had a theme of improvisation, and Dana Jessen, who's this incredible contemporary bassoonist, and Sam Pluta, who's a composer based at University of Chicago, were the guest artists, and they're both incredible improvisers. And they basically just threw us in a room. We're like, okay, you two, you have to do this thing where you can only play high and you can only play low and you have to play with each other. And so that I see it. I see that that as a turning point of being told I had to do something and other people being uncomfortable around me, but still doing something and getting, getting used to it being uncomfortable. Um, And then when I came back, there's a trumpet player that went to Indiana with me who's based in Chicago, Matt Riggin, if you know him. I don't think so. Okay, but he's he's an incredible improviser. And because he does free jazz, um, he, he and I are very close to the border of jazz and classical. And so he was like, hey, do you want to do some improv shows? Um, like, I think it'd be really fun uh, knowing what I do and what he does. And so we started doing some like duo improvs, which are safer and easier to do. Cause you can, if you feel uncomfortable, you can hide behind someone. Um, <laughs> like you can start hiding in, in their sound. And at some point I stopped hiding a little bit and started like leading him. And at some point I started also improv improvising myself more um because it's solo improv is definitely the hardest of the forms of improv um and at some point it i found sounds that i that were that were comfortable and they were in my happy place and i could go back to those if i felt uncomfortable rather than hiding behind someone else Mm. uh so even though i was using my comfort zone I was still able to lead and to push and to develop sound. And so I guess, I guess that's what, what happened is I found ways to make myself comfortable in my uncomfortableness because I could explore the instrument and I knew what, where things sat in my instrument. And so I became more confident in trying things. Wow. Um, There's so much, so much in there that is so useful. I think for, especially a lot of classical performers because they're so used to reading notated music, you know? Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> like, I'm definitely one of those. I actually went into my master's thinking I was going to be an orchestral musician. Right. Um, 
I had always loved new music and had always done worked with composers. Uh, but it wasn't until my master's where I really realized that this was what I wanted to do. So I had never improvised. I like literally wouldn't do it. Um, and to the point where like, I, if I had something in a, a contemporary piece or in, even in band where like they have like a little aleatoric box, I would write it out. Right. <laughs> like, right. I would plan it out and I would have something written that I could play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's been a very interesting discovery that I actually really do enjoy improvisation. And um, so there was someone who was asking me recently, like, how do I self-identify as like performer, composer, whatever it is? And I was like, I think I'm a performer improviser now. Mm-hmm. I think I can say that. <laughs> um, whereas I used to always just say I was a performer. That's that's a. Uh... It's an interesting spot to sort of be in a way. I mean, because like, especially in new music, you mm-hmm. know, there's such a demand on uh, the the amount of things that you need to be doing at one given moment. You know, it's like play this note with this rhythm and this amount of air present, <laughs> and then yeah. be- bend the flute as you do that. You know, like, <laughs> and and I imagine like that's sort of where improvisation actually can it can it can translate into improvisation pretty well. Yeah, because now you're you're actually in my mind at least, and please like correct me on this, but like I feel like it's providing you a lot more tools to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've, I've also I think I talked about this in a video recently, but I was I kind of make improvs into etudes. So if I'm struggling with something or like I really want to focus on pitch bending or multiphonics or something, instead of finding an exercise because it's they, they, those don't really exist especially with the contemporary sounds mm-hmm. i'll start improvising and really focus on that and if it's good and i like it i'll post it and fine and if it's not if it just sounds like an etude then cool but it was it it flexes two muscles and it works it works in many in different bunch of different ways and is much more engaging to me than like a technical etude <laughs> that's great yeah <laughs> Well, this is, this is fantastic. I mean, I, it's funny because, like, I mean, as we were corresponding via email, um, you know, I was mentioning how, like, with, with these podcasts and stuff, like, I, I don't really have a general plan as to what everything we're going to talk about. But there are some things that I think yeah. would be interesting. And I, what I love is, like, so far, we've talked about things that are applicable for both composers and performers. Yeah. And I, I think that, like, I don't write a ton I do write a little bit of flute music but it's mostly for myself and like very specific to what I do um but I have spent so much time around composers and I do understand the mindset and like the stress that you guys have that I try to as I've said before bridge the gap of like I we are all scared and stressed and worried about stuff and I'll have very uh, like esoteric careers to look forward to um and if we can work together rather than against each other it works better it's it's more fun (laughs) i love that that's fantastic robin i i feel like uh what a great spot right there i don't want to but i feel like that's a good spot to end the conversation (laughs) um 
before we do though, is there anything, anything else that you want to tag on or like some, something you want to say to people, like, like one of the projects you have coming up or your current project or. I mean, well, so right now I'm doing a hundred days of new music. Uh, it's 40 improvs and 60 works by living composers. Um, that is on my YouTube channel and it will be posting until whatever day 100 is. We're <laughs> on day 11 today. So <laughs> it's going to be for a while. Um, and yeah, I, um, I love working with composers and I like creating resources with composers. And I think it would be really cool to see more people doing it um, and focusing a lot more on creating resources for the modern era rather than living in the past, which is a problem that most music musicians have just because of the nature of the way we play. Um, but we have to evolve and we have to change and we need to be on the forefront of that because that's the only way we can. Um, but yeah, I, my social media is all Robin Makesons. So if you want to check out what I do, I am pretty easy to find. <laughs> and um, yeah. Well, awesome. That's, that's a great spot right there. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> Thank you.